The Earth Wants You is a project of the Church of Stop Shopping, a radical performance community based in New York City. We rely on you. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. If you want to support our work, and what is our work? We resist consumerism. We resist the military. We resist the commodification of the earth and her resources. Earthaluya people, join us. Revbilly.com. Welcome, 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 children. The earth wants you. That's the name of our radio podcast, amen. I'm here, Reverend Billy, with our co-host, Savitri D. Savi, amen. Now, we're heavily involved with the Church of Stop Shopping, Presbyst. And we're just coming off of the Thanksgiving weekend, Black Friday. We've been out in front of Macy's. We've been trying to hold back the hordes of consumers, children. Amen. Hallelujah. I don't think we succeeded. Praise be. Now, today's show is, oh, it's a lot of it is about Puerto Rico and the Stop Shopping Choir. We have a number of PR citizens and refugees and parents and children and nephews and nieces. We were heavily involved in the, the fortunes of that island, so hard hit by Irma and Maria. We'll be talking to a, a native from Puerto Rico, Nick Powers, today will be our interview. Nicholas just visited there and um, wrote a wonderful piece for The Independent here in New York. We'll be, we'll be um, giving you some music from Puerto Rico, Porfin, and also Nina Simone, of course. Sister Nina must, must sing to us. Hallelujah. This is where social justice and earth justice comes together. Let's work on that. Seemingly impossible task, but got to do it. Got to do it, children. Amen. Now, I'm going to kick things off here, all right? Yeah. Are you ready, Sabi? I'm ready. I'm ready, Rev. And engineer figure, Killian Sundeman, German-Irish gentleman from Dublin. (laughs) Killian. Killian. I had an experience yesterday I'd like to share, just to get things off on the right right note. I was coming back from doing my co-op shift at our, you know, wonderful organo, share everything, no profits, let's work together, co-op. And uh, on my way back, I said, boy, that was a good shift. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a glass of beer. And I like pulled over at a dive called, ironically, the Carriage Inn on 7th Avenue. Pulled over, just like, I just came up to it like a horse, you know, in the middle of a Western. I just like, I just got off my bike through the door. So they told me, hey, 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 this is Brooklyn. There's a dark economy about bicycles, a, a big dark economy. You better, you better go out there and lock it up. So I went out and locked up the bike. Amen. Then I went in. My, my IPA was ready for me right there. And, well, wouldn't you know I had to go to the bathroom. Amen. There I go. I disappear in the back of the dive. And I come back out. And, you know, I read the paper, talk to people, banter, 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 banter. And then... I got to go. I got to pick up Lena, seven-year-old Lena, from school today. That's my job. And where are my keys? Where are my keys?
keys. Look here, look there, look here, look there. And, you know, being an over-the-top dramatic kind of person, I am now on all fours underneath the cars out on 7th Avenue, going back, you know, washing the entire bathroom, looking for the keys. Looking in the nooks and, nooks and crannies of, of, of a very dark dive bar. Amen. There are five ne'er-do-wells sitting there drunk, watching me laughing the entire time. I am their entertainment, you know, and, and, and I don't find the keys. And I'm getting worried. I call what we call in Brooklyn a car service, Eastern Car Service. And they, they come up and I jump in and I'm like calling my partner trying to like figure out what do I do and, and I can't get her. Uh, her name is Savitri. She's in this little room with me right now. Savitri. Listen, listen. I can't the reason get you. you can't get me, I can't get the you. The reason you can't get me on the phone is because I was standing in my apartment working. You know, it's like a third floor apartment. It's on a hillside. It's pretty high up. And I... Yeah, there was an earthquake. I was like, oh, that's an earthquake. And I jumped out of the house the way you do when there's an earthquake. You, your legs get all jelly-like and you feel funny Amen. and you don't know what you're hearing and something's wrong and you know it and you just get out of the house. I mean, that's what you do. So I jumped out of the house. My Italian neighbor was down there, Paola, and she she was also out of the house. Paola. And we, we wondered, where's everyone else? Why isn't anyone else out here? And anyway, we stood around for a while and, of course, it was an earthquake. And we went back inside and... I was excited. You know, you can tell I'm a little, I'm still excited. And you were not answering your phone. I'm desperate here. Anyway, Billy I'm desperate didn't, here. oh, that's right. Billy you didn't know? get through to me because uh, I was in the middle husband? of an earthquake. Where's husband? Not a huge earthquake. 5.1. Anyway. I think the earthquake hit the bar while Check I was on out. my, knee, on so my like, knees. Like 90 looking. minutes later, Billy comes home. We're sitting around. Lena and I, we're at the piano. Lena's practicing her song. And Billy just, I, I tell you, he got very sad for a few minutes. He just didn't seem well. He wasn't himself. He was morose. He was moping around the house. I was like, Billy, what's wrong? What's the matter? I could feel it through my back. I like to you think know. I'm a happy guy. Was that a, he was so miserable. It's like, Billy, what's the matter? Yeah. He goes, he goes, I got set up. It was sad. He goes, it was a classic setup. I just figured it out. I said, what happened? What happened? So he tells me this story about the keys and the bike and losing, you know. And he, what he says is, and he put it all together. He said, it's a setup. They, t- they told me to go. Locked my bike. I locked my bike. I went back inside. They stole my keys. And, and I'm like, why would, they steal, why would they steal your keys? He says, oh, to humiliate me. So I'd crawl around in the bar and act like an idiot. I was like, well, yeah, that would be funny. And maybe they did, you know. I'm laughing But then now. he realizes, no, 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 it's a real setup. And they've stolen his bike. Now, let me tell you something. Billy is not crying. He's not angry yet, but he's upset. You know, I'm like, well, you ought to go just check, check and see if the bike is there. Why don't you just ride my bike over, look and see if the bike... That's one way to find out if that's what happened. (laughs) Let's go. I'm saying, why even go? It's so clear what happened. He was so depressed, and the bike was stolen, you know? And I said, well, take a car over. Maybe you could uh, ride the subway. Anyway, I finally said, oh, I see. He's depressed. I'm going to drive him. So we get in the car. We pile in the car. It's almost bedtime. You know, we interrupt the piano lesson. We get in the car. And, you know, Billy is just almost in tears. It's not a cheap bike. It's a cargo bike. Okay. It's just not like a throwaway bike. This is a a bike. Slumped over. A dark moment. Yeah. It's it's worth more than anything we own. I'm going to tell you. Maybe most of what we own put together is not worth the same as the bike. Our friend gave it to us. It's a cargo bike. It's expensive. Anyway, we finally get to the bar. And things are crazy. You know, there was an earthquake. The animals are going crazy. There's cops everywhere. There's a helicopter. The road's cordoned off. I'm like, jeez. Energy's wild in Brooklyn. But people are doing U-turns. Lots of people yeah, doing U-turns. It was just manic. Three people doing U-turns simultaneously in one block. Manic you know. energy. What? Anyway, you know, we pull up to the bar, and guess what is in front of the bar? Billy's bike, of course. With a note on it. With yeah. a note saying, your keys Key are at the in bar. the bar. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, and I go in there. <laughs> 
I go in there, and there's an obese man sitting at the sitting at the sitting at the bar, and he says, "I was sitting on him. My 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 keys were underneath this obese man's butt." And he said, I thought it was a spring. These stools are so old, there's springs sticking through. I thought it was a spring sticking through. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, here, here you go. Here, here, you, here are your keys. I was sitting on them. <laughs> Watching you, you know, <laughs> like roll around on the floor uh, looking for the... Amen. Hallelujah. Well, I've got my keys, got my bike, got so my friends, wife, got my you, child, If you got can't my find your show. keys, look under the fat man's ass. That's my advice to you. Now, that's, that's a real lesson. And now I think it's time to turn to more serious matters. News from the natural world with Savitri D. As we enter December, the Chukchi and Bering Seas, which border Alaska on its western and northern sides, have unprecedented areas of open water and the least amount of ice ever recorded there. In recent years, the Chukchi Sea has reached 95% coverage, about two and a half weeks later than it did in the late 70s, when satellites first started recording sea ice. Earlier this summer, scientists aboard the research vessel Norseman II found an influx of warm Pacific water near the Bering Strait about a month earlier than usual, and measured water temperatures as high as 5 degrees Fahrenheit above the historical average. There's just a hell of a lot of heat there one scientist said. The trash washing up on the UK's beaches has risen by 10% in 2017. Much of the waste is plastic, and advocates are urging the government to introduce a charge on single-use plastic items, such as straws, cups, and cutlery. About 12 million tons of plastic litter enter the oceans every year, killing millions of marine animals. The tax on plastic bags was introduced in the UK in 2015. Since then, their use has dropped by 85%. And the number of bags found on beaches is down by 40%. Similar measures are proposed for all single-use plastics. Researchers have been trapping and sequencing the DNA of brown rats in Manhattan, a borough of New York City. <laughs> producing the most comprehensive genetic portrait yet of New York City's most dominant rodent population. As a whole, Manhattan's rats are genetically most similar to those from Western Europe, especially Great Britain and France. They most likely came on ships in the mid-18th century when New York was still a British colony. When, excuse me, oh yes, that's correct. I was like, wait, when was it a British colony? <laughs> when still is. <laughs> When combs looked closer, distinct rat subpopulations emerged. Manhattan has two genetically distinguishable groups of rats, the uptown rats and the downtown rats. Where does Donald Trump fit in this? <laughs> Separated by the geographic barrier that is midtown. <laughs> oh, no. The uptown rats and downtown rats don't mix much. You're That's telling hilarious. me. That's Even hilarious. different neighborhoods have their own distinct rats. If you gave us a rat, we could tell whether it came from the West Village or the East Village, said Combs. They're little, unique rat neighborhoods. And there might be as many as 500 of these neighborhoods in New York City. Wow. A recent report by the United Nations Environmental Jesus. Program estimated the annual global consumption of sand and gravel to exceed 40 billion tons. It is used in many, many things, from toothpaste and plaster to stonewashed jeans, crockery, kitchen sinks and to toilet bowls, from windows and beer bottles to silicon chips that are used in items from smartphones to cars. 
but by far the biggest consumer is the construction industry, which uses sand to produce bricks, asphalt, and concrete. It takes about 200 tons of the stuff, the stuff being sand, to make a mid-sized house. To build a kilometer of highway takes 30,000 tons of sand. And a nuclear power plant, around 12 million tons of sand. Sand is a fossil resource, said researcher Kieran Pereira. It takes millions of years to form, but a mine can be exhausted in decades, she pointed out. We need to recognize and value the ecosystem services provided by sand, many of which are irreplaceable. 1970 was the last time humanity consumed the resources of just one Earth in a single year. <clears throat> I'll say that again. 1970 was the last time humanity consumed the resources of just one Earth in a year. Livestock has directly caused about one quarter of Earth's warming in the industrial age, and scientists from the U.S. Departments of Agriculture and Energy say bigger, more resource-heavy cattle are accelerating the problem. Contrary to popular belief, cows contribute to global warming mostly through their burps, not their flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> scientists are trying to develop a vaccine to stop those burps. This is not a standard vaccine, says Peter Jansen, <laughs> the anti-burp program's principal research Jesus. scientist. It's proving to be an elusive little genie to get out of the bottle. Maybe we could combine the rats with the <clears throat> cows somehow. Since the 1970s, more than 93% of excess heat captured by greenhouse gases has been absorbed by the oceans. To understand how much heat that is, think of it this way. If the oceans weren't absorbing it, average global temperatures on land would be far higher, around 122 degrees Fahrenheit. The global average surface temperature right now is 59 degrees Fahrenheit. A 122 Fahrenheit world, needless to say, would be unlivable. More than 93% of climate change is out of sight and out of mind for most of us land-dwelling humans. But as the oceans continue to absorb all that heat, they're becoming unlivable themselves. It appears that air pollution may weaken the bones. People living in polluted areas had higher rates of osteoporosis and bone fractures. Venezuelan doctors are reporting spikes in unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases across the country attributed to a severe shortage of all kinds of contraceptives, including condoms. What was that? What, what, what was that? Venezuela is in a severe economic recession, as I'm sure you know. Inflation what was is that very about high. Prophylactics? What? Yes. Well, so you know how bad it is there. Now, people are waiting in line for hours for bread. They're even rationing toothpaste. But the, contracept the contraceptive shortage is a crisis for multiple reasons uh, unwanted pregnancies and STDs, including HIV, are spiking. Oh my God. And so many Venezuelan women have found a solution, and they're, uh, they're, uh, tr there's an informal trading system on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for contraceptives, um, like IUDs, Used implants, and, co and condoms. Now, I didn't read any reports about you know reuse of condoms, um, but even this system, these are black market prices for this. So some people are spending like 30% of their monthly wages on birth control. And then all these o sort of older methods of contraception are coming back, like the rhythm method. And then, of the Roman course, Catholic faith. Well, and also these remedies that don't work, like ginger tea and, and 
papaya twice Jumping a day. up and down. So it's it's just interesting how like hyper capitalism basically creates these anachronistic archaic situations right like that we go forward to the past mm. right mm. what venezuela is dealing right with right now is the outcome of hyper capitalism and here's our segue into puerto rico where we have an 83 billion dollar debt to a handful of guys here in manhattan who run a hedge fund and they they somehow what they're on the phone with donald trump who's insulting the puerto rican people that they you know that they're their hurricanes aren't all that bad, and they should pay their debts. They don't work hard. They're lazy. They don't pay their debts. Well, what are their debts to these people who are like, you know, gerrymandering mathematics to steal the island? Now, 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 now that island is is. We'll get an update. We'll get an update from Nick Powers in a moment. We'll get, we'll get a. Uh, um, we'll, we'll we'll try to know exactly what's going on there right now in the in the darkness of in the in the absence of electricity and water. Uh, we just have well at the church of stop shopping. We had a, a phone calls from relatives. And we had reports coming in, uh, but the the future to the past is is demonstrated by today's t- today's island. And here, a, a beautiful, sweet traditional song Porfin uh, from Puerto Rico and I'm sorry to say I was not able to find out who was singing the song
Corfin. What a beautiful song. I'll just say a few of the words in English. Finally, I can feel it. I know you and I admit to you finally that I know what it is like to live with a sigh in my chest, with tickles inside. And finally, I know why I am like this. You have made me better, better than I ever was. And I would give my voice in exchange for a lifetime. You've made me understand that nothing is eternal, but your skin and my skin can stop the time. Oh, I haven't stopped thinking. I have become what I never imagined. You have divided my soul and my being into all my life is in your hands and your mouth. Finally, I can feel it's just so lovely. And it does make you Love think porn. about how in disaster people find each other. Right. I know many relationships that are born of disaster. In fact, Billy and I got married shortly after 9-11. Our Amen. guest today on The Earth Wants You, and, and I'm so glad back. you're with us. No on regrets, the Earth honey. Wants you is Nicholas Power. He is a professor of literature, a poet, and a journalist. That's Powers, more than one power. I am so sorry. Nicholas Powers is a professor of literature, a poet, and a journalist. He's written for Truth Out, The Independent, and The Village Voice. Hello, Nick. This is Reverend Billy. Can you hear me? Hey, Earth Hallelujah, Reverend. All right, Nick. Now, you're just back from Puerto Rico. You're back from... Um, devastation and you're back from from tremendous love what what's what are you feeling right now how long have you been back a couple of weeks yeah i came back and been back for about three weeks and the first two or three days that i came back there was a deep heaviness after seeing uh an island wrecked by the hurricane uh power lines snapped homes uh, flipped over, roofs peeled off, and then also just people struggling every single day to get gasoline, water, uh, food. So there was a deep heaviness, and the the way that I worked through it is to try to keep contact and see if I can help uh, as much as I can the people that I met there, uh, like getting generators, um, getting donations there. Uh, Nick, so you wrote in the beginning of your beautiful piece in The Independent um, about the the prevalence of dystopian writing now and the, the dystopian fiction, and um, and there you were in a dystopian reality. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, just the physical reality that you saw around you? Um, I mean, a, a lot of the stuff we've heard on the news, but um, some of your descriptions were so um, poignant, like being in a car. What it, what it's like to be in darkness, actually, at night. It was an odd beauty to see very clearly stars overhead because the city itself was dark. Without the electricity, all the lights were off. And so the kind of canopy of the stars were very visible. And so it was very beautiful, but it was an odd kind of beauty because it was connected to a lot of destruction of the island and of destruction of the lives. Um, but it was as if the island had been thrown back in time before modernization, uh, before electricity. And um, so at night when I would sleep in the, in, the car, in the back of the car, I would sometimes wake up and, you know, just kind of take a walk around. And I didn't know if I was looking at the island way deep in the past before electricity or if I was looking at what the island is going to be in the future if the hurricanes keep coming and keep ripping the island apart and eventually it would be uninhabitable and people could not live there. So it was like seeing two visions of the island, one in the deep past and one in the possible near future. 
And maybe you could talk a little bit about people's view of, of American capitalism in Puerto Rico, because, you know, there's these two things running parallel, right? There's the reality of climate change, and then there's the reality of colonialism and the, the current capitalist uh, state that's uh, really intrinsically at, uh, oppressing <laughs> Puerto Rico right now. Yeah, there's a deep history of in almost every person I talked to, a deep history of, of knowing the island was stolen and that the lives of the people were stolen. And they felt like they'd been hit by two hurricanes. Um, and the first hurricane was colonization and capitalism that was taking minerals from the land, uh, taking the water from the land, um, taking the reproductive, the wounds from the women through the sterilization campaign, um, and taking and taking and taking. And then now the hurricanes, which are becoming stronger because of industrial capitalism and the carbon being poured into the air, that now they're being hit by a new hurricane that's really caused by the first one. And and so there's a, a deep bitterness, but then there's also a deep dependency and relationship to the United States because so many people have gone from the island to the mainland. And that there's also a split in the generations. Uh, Pablo, an activist who I met there, he said the younger generation was much more ambivalent about the relationship to the U.S., whereas the older generation had become accustomed to the U.S. kind of taking care or at least maintaining order on the island. And now that it's been a month and the island is still without electricity, they're still very hard to get water, and you don't really see police officers very much anywhere, maybe a few directing traffic. The schools aren't really running. The hospitals are barely getting by on generators. So the state infrastructure of the island has collapsed. So now people really feel like they're on their own, and they don't really feel like they're connected to, to the United States. And so they're getting a taste of what, it, what it's like to be a nation on their own, having to rebuild from scratch, because they actually don't have on-the-ground hard material help from the, the U.S. government. But is it true that we're getting this kind of uh, communications in the Stop Shopping Choir from from uh, the relatives and friends of of, of the PR people among us uh, that uh, people are finding new ways to help each other, that love is manifesting between uh, people in, in ways that becomes an economy, becomes a sharing, uh, and then uh, is that true? Were you able to uh, you were you were you were reuniting with your your family, right? After yep. after some decades of not being there, you were. Yeah, both of those. Yeah, both of those points are absolutely true. I mean, yeah, reuniting with the family, and I'll, I'll say speak on that in a second. The first point, um, that was just an odd experience where I went to Sosorse. Um, right off Borinquen Plaza, and that's in, you know, in San Juan. And at night, you saw people sharing food, sharing water, um, older men playing dominoes under these generator-powered lamps, uh, young boys on bicycles, you know, pedaling around. Uh, lots of people gathered in stores that had generators uh, fueling the lights, and most stores didn't. So the few stores that did, everyone came to those places and just hung out. And I stood there, and... I kind of almost like said in my head, like, why aren't you suffering more? Like, it seemed like people were having a good time. And there is an element of the carnival where, because um, 
it's difficult to it's difficult to work there. Electricity's out. Um, people can't go to school. The schools are filled with uh, homeless. And so, in the absence of the kind of work and school routine, people go out into the streets and they actually hang out. They talk uh, and they help each other. And everywhere I went to the island, um, there was people helping each other and also helping me report. So when I woke up in the morning uh, out of my car, there was a man who offered me coffee and cheese and crackers. Oh, Another yes. morning, someone else offered me all the food. And then I kind of got the spirit. So that when I received food from the National Guard, this huge stack of aluminum wrapped plates uh, filled with great rice and beans. When I went into the mountain and I saw the single mother with two young boys, and she was having a hard time getting food and water, I gave her the food that the National Guard gave me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a very kind of contagious feeling of helping each other and solidarity. And the you could feel the spirit on the island. It was a resilience. And also, over and over again in the conversations and interviews, people would say, you know, it's hard, but I'm also happy that I'm actually having time with my family, that... I'm not looking at my cell phone. I get to rediscover my, my family. We get to talk more. So there was a sense that uh, that living without the kind of modernity, without electricity, without the TV, without the cell phones, forced people to relearn each other. And so right now the island is relearning who it is. Well, now the 25 years since you personally have been there, in that time from all the reports that we get at, at, the, at the choir uh, the hyper-consumerism has landed in Puerto Rico and chain stores everywhere and uh, credit schemes and credit cards and, and uh, the, that, that, kind of, that kind of modern life has been swept aside. They can't be. Is that consumerism going to survive? It seems as if um, people helping each other out face-to-face are new economies of love that uh, will replace the, the Wall, Wall Streetization of the island? It depends if it catches hold uh-huh. and how long people go without the self-generating uh, electricity and basic needs, and they have to create everyday life with each other every single day all over again. And if that goes on long enough, then a culture around uh, self-reliance but also interdependence is going to take hold and become very strong. And that the pleasures that people have from helping each other are going to be what people prefer rather than kind of going back into that kind of chain store, you know, hyper-marketed, hyper-consumer world. Right, and I think it's Um, on us. It's on us, the people, right, communities, families, individuals, to make that opportunity in the same way that corporations are creating this other opportunity, which is a land grab, a resource grab, uh, you know, disaster capitalism, right, at its most perfect example. And um, I, I, like, I think a lot about how companies and corporations like Monsanto and the pharmaceuticals are just, they're so eager right now because what they see is like a desperate, na- a desperate island of people who need them in a way and, and they can swoop in there and then Monsanto can grow three GMO crops a year. And, you know, but how we respond as, as, um, as humans, as communities um, is so critical right now. And that it, it's so great that you wrote your piece and that, that your piece actually had this other tone in it because a lot of the 
news we read is just about destruction. It's just negative, negative, negative. And you don't hear the stories about people helping each other. And you don't, we don't take the time to, to create this other reality, which, um, after all, is, is the future for all of us, right, after capitalism. And there is life after capitalism, people. There is life after Amen. capitalism. There is Preach life it. after Preach capitalism. It. And we can Sister build Sally. that life, you know. And a place We've like Puerto to. Rico, where you can grow We've food all year round, is, is, is a perfect... Um, you know, system to really experiment with that. And Pablo, we know Pablo Borges, a beautiful person. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he lives up there on that farm and they're highly self-sufficient there and have been in the past. And I know he's come down in the city to do relief work and help his parents. And But, you know, there are places in Puerto Rico that are totally off the grid and have been off the grid. And this is the thing I always want to tell humans. Remember how strong and resilient you are. Remember the skills you have. It only takes two or three growing cycles for people to learn how to farm again. We can do this. Marta Rosario from our choir, Marta keeps saying again and again, we've got to convert to solar. <laughs> Let's not go back to the electric grid, which is so much that utility is so much a part of the capturing of people by by the larger corporations. Go back to solar. Yeah, I think just a a renewable there's a couple of pieces that have to be put in place for for there to be the space for communal um, kind of 21st century agricultural uh, culture. One of which is the a green energy grid which takes things away from the fossil fuel industry and returns um, power generation into independent, um, you know, individual people in their own homes generating their, their electricity needs via their own solar panels or local communities like Casa Pueblo who had um, solar paneled streetlights. So when the storm hit and the town of um, Juntas went dark, their street was the only one lit. And in some ways, that was a metaphor for the vision that they had for a future Puerto Rico on a very small mm -hmm. scale, just one street in front of their big hall, uh, which has been around for about almost 20 years. And how it was the only place that was lit in a city that had been uh, slammed by the hurricane winds. And so people were collecting physically around their streetlights powered, powered by the sun during the day. And it became almost a metaphor of how people are going to have to collect around the new vision. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Um, the other thing is the other piece is probably a basic income in which, you know, we've been hearing now for the past 30 years, but it's getting to a tipping point that autom automation is um, going to take over whole sectors of labor. And, um, you know, one of the kind of salient critiques is um, there's one form of resistance, which is workers uh, fight for more or greater portions of the surplus profits generated by capitalism. But another um, side critique is it actually liberating people from labor itself. Yes. Right. So that's kind of Jean Bolzirard's The Mirror of Production. And that was his critique of Marxism saying, yes, so much of what Marx says is, is accurate, but we can free people from labor itself and actually allow people more free time um, to enjoy life, um, uncommodified life. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's, the, you know, the other thesis of what's, you know, the paradise and hell, which is. Um, if people aren't pushed to starvation, um, but they can still somehow get their basic needs met, but they have to rely on each other, that it creates this kind of euphoria of solidarity. 
which replaces the kind of endorphin addiction that one gets from status objects, high mm. status objects, high status experiences. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I remember when I uh, interviewed the pastor, he said, look, you know, Puerto Rico is now going through something that's never gone before. And, and we're now having to kind of relearn each other because the cell phones and uh, kind of individual social media, celebrity culture through Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, has made us very individualistic and very selfish. And now in the darkness, we're actually seeing, oddly enough, more of who we really are. Um, but at the same time, we can't really – there's two caveats to that. Um, the, the, the solidarity of disaster um, is not sustainable. Mm-mm. And so it, it can't be – we can't just rely – on the disasters of climate change or the disasters of capitalism um, to create solidarity because that's a very dicey game um, and it entails a lot of suffering. And I think the other thing is that um, the last thing to point out, at least on, on, about this topic, is that Puerto Rico has been an island split by class mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's a very poor island. About half of Puerto Rico, I think, is on welfare. Mm-hmm. And um, that there was one story, um, someone in kind of a distant branch of the family that I reconnected with in Puerto Rico talked about this uh, young man who had gone to school to become a doctor. And he was now rubbing shoulders with the upper echelon of of high wealth Puerto Rican culture. And his mother was very obese. And he was very poor and, you know, kind of, you know, working class. And he was embarrassed by her, embarrassed by her looks, embarrassed by her working class accent, embarrassed by her being, you know, basically like an urban hibaro. And so he actually, in a sense, cut her off. Mm. Like he, she kind of, he pushed oh, her yeah. out of his life. Mm. And so the, 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 the psychological strain of trying to jump the great gulf between working class Puerto Rican, uh, Puerto Rico and upper class Puerto Rico is very large. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think that the communal culture was already existing in working class, um, Puerto Rico, um, but it's a very separate world from the small elite, which, you know, are clustered around the major cities. Um, and that's Do you something... have a sense, Nicholas, that it's the elite that will leave Puerto Rico? Yes, it's the elite, it's the middle class, and if anyone who can um, get a bunch of, a little bit of money together to get the elderly and the sick who need medical attention mm. out of an island whose hospitals are, are faltering, uh, because of spotty electricity and spotty supplies. Um, and then, so basically it's leaving the poor um, on the island, um, the sick and the old who can't leave because mm. they're poor. And so the the, the young are also leaving because they want to continue their lives and they don't want to, in a sense, have their young lives derailed by being on an island that is not connected to the world. And so they wind up leaving, going to the mainland. And so basically, you know, Puerto Rico the trends keep continuing and it keeps draining the, the, the youth and the middle and upper classes, then what we may see is that is it is the weakest and the poorest, the oldest and the sickest who are left really to defend right. an island right. against corporations. Right. And then you would also see what we have, say, in a place like Haiti, where so much of the economy comes from people in the U.S. sending money back, which is not sustainable Brilliant. either. Yeah. And I think yep. it is important to always just remark in a conversation like this where we're talking about larger ideas you know, on the individual suffering that people are dealing with their mental illness and physical calamity and 
you know, the catastrophe of losing your home, those things are very real. And um, I would never want to underplay them in any discussion of, of life after capitalism, right? These people are going through mm -hmm. real things right now on the ground. Um, I do think, though, that there's a so much for for us as as movement builders and um, movement readers and um, watchers of culture to learn right now about how we talk about Puerto Rico, you know, how we talk about what's happening there and that we use, as you did in your article, it's positive language to describe it um, because it is easy to, you know, relegate these whole things into this, you know, murky area where it's just sad desperate life you know and i think it, it mm -hmm. once we do that then we've othered the whole situation and we no longer treat it as our problem right as our reality and something we all have yeah. to deal with together so i thank yeah, I you in, for your yeah. article really I, it did a lot for me thank you so much yeah and i agree with you i think that the neoliberal imagination is terrified of crowds of self-sufficient or at least uh fighting uh, working class and poor people and characters because it's hard. Neoliberalism, I think, seems to like people who it can take pity on mm. and um, see as, as kind of charity, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really have a space in its plot or its narrative um, for people who I saw there who were helping each other out and were re uh, rebuilding the island. Well, Nicholas, um, we have enjoyed... An been edified by your moving talk today about your family's home island and we we feel a, a, a very familiar feeling uh, because there are issues here that are so much like white flight and so much like the the floods and hurricanes that um, we're having all over the place now the, the northern temperate the northern temperate people are not uh, safe anymore the uh, hurricanes are queuing up, Category 5 hurricanes. We've got the ice melting from the north. We've got California in flames. We've, we're, we're starting to, to see the way that these disasters make these, these social designs that are not fair and that are killing us. It's like a spotlight. The spotlight suddenly goes on class. The spotlight suddenly goes on. Where's the money coming from and where is it going to? It, the, the, the drama seems to be forced on us by, uh, well, by ourselves, but also forced on us by what the earth is doing. Mm. Amen. So we're going to move Amen. on now. Nick, and I'm, I, you're at the railroad station now? Where are you? Yeah, you're out of the. Yeah. You're in the. You're in the interse, interses <laughs> between, <laughs> between cab and railroad. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. Wishing you a very thank good you. day and just grateful to you for Take talking care with yourself, us today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, brother. Thank you so much. Bye now. Oh, and here's the beautiful Nina Simone. Twenty-second century. Faces like 
broken and there are no more babies born when there is no one and there is everyone when there is no one and there is everyone tomorrow will be the 22nd century tomorrow will be the 22nd century tomorrow will be the 22nd It will be, Hard to interrupt Nina Simone, but that song is 900 minutes long. <laughs> oh, I mean nine minutes long. Um, the 22nd century, written time. by a Haitian priest called Exuma, and uh, an amazing song. You should check out the rest of it. And Justin Vivian Bond. Oh yes, does it, I think an exemplary version an of amazing it. Amazing. I think actually, no offense, Nina, but Justin Vivian Bond pulls that song off, and it's. It's nine minutes long. I mean, you don't have to choose. You don't love, love them right. both. You're right, Sister Sabi. Right. Love them both. Speaking of choosing, um, so I was reading this thing, and I I don't quite quite understand it. It has to do with intrinsic spirals and the magnetic surface and depth, the deep magnetism and surface magnetism of the Earth and the hemisphere you're on and the um, internal intrinsic spirals in each of our bodies. What are you talking so, about? What, the thing what is, is this? No, this is important. So every time you turn a dial the wrong way, like against your internal spiral, you're kind of undoing your integrated strength. Okay, so, so say I go up to the sink, and instead of turning the spigot clockwise, I have to turn it counterclockwise. So what that does is it undoes a little bit of my integration so there's this new idea about reintegrating by like so if you do that like at our washing machine you have to turn it counterclockwise to turn it on so now i'm supposed to turn one time around you're going insane in the middle of our radio show you're going south listen i know it sounds i don't quite understand it but i think it feels right though do you know what i mean it feels right it feels not right. So, like, when you if turned, I dial my dial in the wrong direction, then you need to turn a circle. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, you know, New York City's 15 million people should all be turning circles because well, we're no, going in it, the wrong direction. But listen, this is about learning to understand your own intrinsic spiral. Intrinsic spiral, baby. Your intrinsic spirals just so beautiful. I'll, I'll follow it down the street anyway. all day long. Anyway. It is time for Extinction's Got Talent. And today we celebrate the sage grouse, America's bird of paradise, so-called. 
because of their elaborate spring mating dances. Big crowds of female sage grouse gather in flat open spots called leks to watch competing males. The sounds echo across the sagebrush, whoop, whoop, pop, pop, as males vigorously thrust yellow air sacs out of a billow of snow-white feathers draped around their neck. They inflate these bulbous yellow air sacs and thrust with their heads to produce weird pops and whistles. Sometimes rival males face off and flap their feathers in wing-beat scuffles. On spring nights with a full moon, the breeding displays can last all night. Mm. The range of the greater sage-grouse, the sagebrush steppe ecosystem, has been severely fragmented over the past two centuries by settlement, farming, ranching, mining, sprawling urban development, invasive species, changes to fire regimes, and fossil fuel extraction. Sage-grouse numbers have dropped from pre-settlement estimates as high as 16 million to a few hundred thousand today, a decline of more than 95%. According to the North American Breeding Bird Survey, greater sage-grouse populations have declined by more than 60% over just the past five decades. And here, the sound of the greater sage-grouse. Amen, the sage grouse. Remarkable sounds. And Salvatry, your uh, visuals that you gave us, they, they gave the sounds a special quality. Dancing around with the white feathers around their necks and the big bulbous, the big, the big balloons coming out of their necks trying to impress the females. Amen, praise be. I'd like to talk for just a moment after the uh, remarkable uh, assessment and, and feeling that we got from um, Nicholas Powers and his visit to his family, to his ancestral home, Puerto Rico. Um, we, f we toss around the word activist uh, in this, in our lives in this radio podcast, but all day long, the idea of being an activist is something that we are dedicated to here at the Church of Stop Shopping. And when I, I just want to go into what we mean by activist a little bit. Usually we mean a physical pressing against a border, going through a wall, pressing against a law across a property line, breaking into exclusive 
traditions of entrenched power. And that, that idea of, of doing this with your body uh, is, uh, that's flying in the face of a lot of uh, activism today. We do a lot of our activism in the environmental movement. A lot of our activism is basically done in the office. It's done with a computer, with a phone, with a cursor that clicks on a, a square on a screen. Uh, we're working against that, and we sense it's one of the things that we it's one of the things that we recognize in the the aftermath of the floods and the fires, certainly uh, in Puerto Rico. The how things become physical, how how things become looking each other in the eyes, how things become. How can I be of service to you? We, when all the, the mishugana of consumerism is taken away, we're left helping each other. We're just dealing with being in this situation uh, together. And a recent, recent uh, uh, tour by the Stop Shopping Choir in England, we would meet with activists in the daytime uh, in a city that we were coming into, and then that evening we would let the activism of the daytime influence the performance on the stage. I'm remembering, especially in Liverpool, we we walked into um, the world of the privatizing of health systems. The National Health Service is so famous in England; it's often cited as the thing that we've got to accomplish in the United States somehow. But actually, it's becoming methodically pr privatized there. And we found ourselves with the union that represents the workers, the, the cooks, and the, and the cleaners in the local hospital, that union called Unite. We were holding hands in a circle, remembering a woman whose name was Heidi, who had passed away prematurely because of the technicalities, because of the endless hemming and hawing, because of getting kicked out of a certain kind of care too soon, because of the profit motive of a subcontractor that was was uh, just being abusive, not compassionate, and not finally healthy for Heidi. And we had a moment of silence for her as we held hands. Some of us started crying. Some of us started singing. We, we started repeating her name. We started telling our own stories. The moment there was a moment of being together with our bodies, with the music. We began to dance, and the, and the dance started moving, and it became a march down the high street of Liverpool. We started contacting other people in a way that, that might have been, well, more hesitant or more predictable or uh, more like your average march with your average rally. Um, but we were released uh, into a, 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 a no-holds-barred, unashamed, can't-be-embarrassed kind of reaching out to the people in Liverpool who were standing along the wayside, some of them joining us in our parade. This came into our performance. How couldn't it? It came into our singing, in our, our praying and parading. It all mixed together in the performance that night on the stage and then after after the performance was over somehow to this day we're not precisely sure who made this decision but we ended up marching to the local hospital 
the Liverpool, Savage, what was the name of it? The, the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. Liverpool General. <laughs> it was down the street, and we ended up walking inside. Well, I had never, I never had heard of a of a march uh, full of radicals going inside a hospital. Not since ACT UP, I guess. (laughs) Not since ACT UP. Well put. There we were. We may have softened our delivery a bit not to wake some people up. We had some concerned nurses coming out talking with us, but we also had intrigued patients who we realized were in this depressing place And they kind of joined us. And we had our rally that we might have had. We had our rally outside the door. But there were people who joined us. We, In the process, we must have been in there only maybe 10 or 15 minutes. But it was such a turning and oppressive institution inside out. It felt so much like the kind of thing that we can do when we're touching, feeling, smelling, when we're, we're entering into the ultimate media of talking and listening to mm. each other without mediation. Yes. And we did that that day. It was a little bit weird and scary, but I think that that's what successful social movements always are when they are able to cause change. Yes. When we make, as we say in the church of Stop Shopping, change Change-a-lou-ya. Yes. Oh, and we feel that with, with our friends in Puerto Rico. We feel that with people around the world who are now recovering from finding a way to come back to each other in the aftermath of of these disasters. Thank you, people, for being with us. Please, Earthalluia, subscribe to our podcast, rate and review our podcast, and join us again. We're so glad. Rate the podcast. To have you with us. This is the truth. This is eternity. Mm-hmm. Five stars, baby. See you on the street. Amen. The Earth Wants You is a project of the Church of Stop Shopping, a radical performance community based in New York City. We rely on you. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. If you want to support our work, and what is our work? We resist consumerism. We resist the military. We resist the commodification of the Earth and her resources. Earthalluya people, join us. RevBilly.com.